Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name is Tim Grady. My co-host, Lou Weiss, is out on assignment today, so I'll be talking to you about all the things that are happening with today's show and last week's show and next week's show. Some very exciting information for all of you. This week, we have Mark Donalek, who is going to be joining us shortly. He's the president and CEO from Pivot International, discussing really what to expect over the next 12 months in manufacturing and what is happening in the global supply chain and whether or not robots are going to replace humans, and I've got a a news story on that in just a moment. Followed by Gary Brooks, who's the chief marketing officer for Syncron, who discusses some missed opportunities, typically for OEM, the big OEM manufacturers. There is an after-sale service component for those folks who make the replacement parts to fix their heavy equipment that comes in from the field and the goal is to have the right place, right part in the right place at the right time. And that's what Syncron actually does a study on your operations and your dealers and helps you tweak that. And they've gotten some pretty remarkable gains in both top-line revenues and bottom-line profits. So Gary's uh, conversation will be very, very interesting. Last week we had Brad Holcomb on the show, who is the committee chair for the Institute for Supply Management's Manufacturing Report. Their report on business talks about the Purchasing Managers Index, a very positive report for March, and followed by Dr. Chris Keel, who is an economist with Armada Corporate Intelligence, and he is also the economist for the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association International. He talks about the Credit Managers Index report, again, a very positive report, plus some other topics that we got into with, uh, with Chris. I want to remind everyone to listen to Dr. Adriana Sanford's show, A Global Perspective, with Dr. Adriana Sanford. She has some very interesting guests on. She talked with Wilfried Drummond, who is the Chief Technology Officer for Hewlett Packard in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Got into a number of subjects there. Probably the most interesting one that I found was when he talked about blockchain. It's a new technology that's coming out in the supply chain to track where things are. A lot of information on that, so tune in uh, to Dr. Adriana Sanford's show, A Global Perspective, for information on that. And I promised I would talk to you about a news story having to do with robots. It turns out that GM is, of course, one of the industry leaders in uh, robotics, and they have been very active in putting robots into their operations, they cut downtime by connecting 7,500 robots to the Internet. There's some 30,000 factory robots uh, in operation at General Motors. And what they're finding is that they can reduce downtime, and if they can swap out a robot, it takes about eight hours. But they know pretty much in advance if that robot's going to have a problem because of wear and tear on it. So they save a lot of money by being right on top of things, getting the data going into the cloud and looking at all of that data, what they call big data, to see what's happening with all of those robots and how they can shave off downtime, which, of course, means production is more smooth. Now, here's the interesting part and the comment about will robots replace humans. GM has increased its new U.S. robotic
2012, while boosting, to everyone to hear this, while boosting U.S. employment by almost a third to 105,000 new jobs. Now, the point of that is robots don't take jobs. Robots create jobs because somebody's got to run the robot. Somebody's got to manage both its programming and its actual operation as well as its maintenance. So it just happens to be a more tech-driven job. So that's the excitement about robots. And here is a comment that comes from uh, General Motors. And they expect to see in the next five years more technology that includes robots but other forms of technology than they have seen in the last 50 years. That is a real acceleration, tenfold acceleration in the amount of technology that's coming into the automotive industry. And it's coming into other industries as well. All the manufacturing, electronics manufacturing, metal producers, everyone is seeing technology come into their operations to make them more efficient. So stay tuned for that. We will be reporting on those kind of developments as we roll through the year. We're going to talk at the end of our show today about next week's show, but let's get into our show with Mark Donalek and Gary Brooks. We're with Gary Brooks, who happens to be the chief marketing officer for a company called Syntron. And, Gary, I'm going to have you do a couple of things for our listening audience. First of all, thank you for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. We appreciate you being here. Oh, thanks, Tim. It's my pleasure. We always enjoy having people on the show who are talking about B2B marketing, a, a subject near and dear to the hearts of manufacturing in America, but they really need uh, – some additional coaching in this area. So I'd like to find out, Gary, what does Synchron do? Yeah, I, I, Synchron's mission is it's really a simple one. We wake up every day um, passionate about helping manufacturers around the world deliver exceptional after-sales service. So that's the service that's delivered after the initial sale of the product. So what does that mean? Um, we help companies, primarily durable goods manufacturers. So think about the manufacturers of heavy equipment, aircraft, appliances, mining equipment, industrial equipment, motorsports, big products that are designed to last more than five years. And so we have a cloud-based solution that helps companies optimize their service parts inventory, the pricing of those service parts, and the ordering of those service parts. You know, uh, 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 an industry analyst firm called Aberdeen Group did a study, and they discovered that 52% of service calls on durable goods fail because the part is not there. So we help these companies make sure that the part is available when that piece of equipment fails or a part fails so that they can repair that piece of equipment and deliver a high level of availability to their customers. Most of the manufacturers that we work with are trying to get their, their part fill rates north of 90%, and the best in class are achieving fill rates as high as 97%. That means when a big piece of earth-moving equipment fails and a part is needed, the local dealer would have it 97% of the time, so they end up with the opportunity to sell that part, and they end up with a very happy customer. And there's, well, I may there's, be asking... I'm sorry, I may be asking you to repeat stuff you just said, but one of your points was uh, 
the missed opportunity for manufacturers and after sales, Gary. What you know, if you're repeating yourself, that's fine. But what's the missed opportunity? You know that a lot of manufacturers focus on the finished good, whether it be a car, a boat, a plane, a train, or a piece of heavy equipment. Many of the manufacturers focus on manufacturing that product and then selling that product. And sometimes the service that's delivered after the initial sale um, can sometimes be an afterthought. But the forward-looking companies have realized that upwards of 25% of their revenue and 50% of their operating margins come from the service that's delivered after the initial sale of the product. And they're beginning to apply advanced technology to their service business so that they can capitalize on that service opportunity. So let, let's just say that you have an air conditioning unit at your house and it fails and you, you put in a service call and the individual shows up and they can't service it because they don't have the part. So it ends up that you're unhappy and they have to make a repeat trip out to your house, which erodes their margin. So by having the right part at the right time and at the right price, the manufacturer can maximize revenue, they can maximize profitability, and they can end up with a very happy customer that uh, could become a customer for life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Makes a world of sense. And, you know, there's, 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 go I'm ahead. sorry, go ahead. Please. There's a significant value proposition associated with making sure that you have the right part at the right time. And we've seen manufacturers increase their service parts revenue 3 to 5, uh, 15%. We've seen them improve gross profits 10 to 40 percent and um, reduce their inventory levels by 15 to 40 percent. That's just by using technology like ours to make sure that the part is there at the right time. And then with our pricing solution, which determines the optimal price for that part in a given market in a given season, we see companies increase revenue by as much as 5 percent and the gross profit margins on their, their part sale by as much as 7%. So there's, there's not only the value equation of having a very happy customer and having a loyal customer, there's significant financial gains to be had by implementing uh, service parts management and pricing technology. So, Gary, let me, let me ask you a question. Uh, actually, two. Uh, First of all, I'm gathering from our previous conversations as well as this one that your client base are primarily the uh, larger corporations and, and such. Uh, is that correct? We do. We serve um, a very uh, large list of leading manufacturers around the world like Hitachi Construction Equipment, Volvo, Deutsche Bahn, JCB, uh, Motorcoach. So when you think about the large durable goods manufacturers around the world, uh, there's a high probability that we are serving one of those. Okay, so you mentioned a couple of times about around the world. Uh, you're located uh, in Georgia. Uh, do you have other locations uh, on other continents? Yes, we are a Swedish company. We're headquartered in Stockholm. And we have regional headquarters uh, in Atlanta and Tokyo with the Atlanta offices, the U.S. headquarters, and our Tokyo offices, our Asia-Pacific headquarters. And then we have offices in most major cities around the world to include uh, Munich, Italy, Bangalore, Warsaw, uh, and the list goes on. So you must be around uh, quite a long time to be able to build up to that uh, 
that's infrastructure? Yeah, the company has been um, growing very rapidly over the past 12 years. Um, and I think uh, the growth can be attributed to some of the some of the macroeconomic and, and social and political changes that we're seeing that are that are driving manufacturers to focus on their after sales uh, service business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, how many years is uh, the company been around? You know, the company was founded about 20 years ago as a consulting firm, and it evolved to become a uh, to become a technology company about 12 mm-hmm. years ago. So okay. we have a. So that- so, so now to my second question. <laughs> my second question is: Now that you you've got this, uh, this structure uh, and a process of uh, what your business model does, when you go into uh, a, a company, how do you? What are the steps that you have to take to determine what services that they need from you? How, how do you go about that? Yeah, so we we typically um, we have a, a team of financial uh, analysts on the marketing team that will look at a company, and we've developed a model that enables us to determine the financial value that we can deliver to that company. So mm-hmm. that's called a value hypothesis. And then when we meet right. with that, we do something called a value assessment. The value assessment allows us to work with uh, members of that manufacturing team to prove out our hypothesis. And the value assessment typically proves that what we've hypothesized actually exists. And then we implement our SaaS uh, software to go and harvest that value that we've identified. Mm. So it's very much a partnership with the manufacturer. We're working very closely with with, uh, people in the service organization uh, to determine the value that exists. So we're very, very focused on delivering quantitative business value in the form of improved revenue, improved margins, and improved customer satisfaction to the manufacturer. So it's, we're not just selling a piece of software, we're partnering with that manufacturer to deliver financial value. Got it. Got it. Um, You also refer to uh, factoring perfect storm that we've experienced over the last couple of years and the, the tough, year that we had in uh, 15 and got worse in 16, which seems to be improving now, uh, only within the last four or five months. Uh, what, what perfect storm are you referring to? Can you explain so that there, to there, our audience? Sure. We're, we've identified four elements of what we're calling the perfect storm. And the first one is over the past two years, we've seen orders of manufactured durable goods decline. Um, there's been a tremendous amount of volatility. Uh, a good example is last year we saw a 23% year-over-year decline in the sale of big tri- big rig trucks. So mm-hmm. if you're a manufacturer, for the past two years, it's been a little rough um, with orders being very volatile and in some markets down significantly. So when the orders are down, um, a lot of companies are starting to look over to the service side of the house to identify how they can make up some of that lost revenue or missed revenue opportunity and margin opportunities. So when the the orders of durable goods are down, we see actually our business goes up because companies are looking over to the service side. The second element of the perfect storm is um, we now have uh, a new administration. 
And I think uh, everyone was well aware that President uh, Trump, when he was running for office, made the promise of delivering uh, a huge improvement to our infrastructure, which would include repairing roads and bridges and tunnels and seaports and airports and sewers and to the price tag of a trillion dollars. And so if that if he actually delivers on that pro promise, it could result in a significant increase in the orders of durable goods. We saw uh, shares of construction equipment manufacturers like Caterpillar and John Deere soar following uh, the announcement that Trump uh, was moving into the White House. So the national infrastructure could have a huge boom. And also, when you think about the type of the, the equipment that's been on the sidelines for many years, whether it's in heavy equipment or in oil rigs or in, um, in mining, a lot of that equipment will need to come back online to capitalize on the opportunity brought in by the national infrastructure. So this will require manufacturers to fine-tune their after-sales service organizations so that they have the parts and they have the people and they have the knowledge required to repair or refurbish these vehicles to get them back online. And that's another driver that's causing organizations to really look at their after-sales service business. The third part or the third leg of the stool uh, in the perfect storm is the millennial generation is taking over the workforce. A recent Pew Research analysis suggested that by the year 2030, the workforce will be comprised, 75% of the workforce will be comprised of millennials. And the millennials have a reputation of being very tech savvy, um, of being a bit impatient and uh, wanting things done on their terms. So this will put some pressure on manufacturers to change the way they deliver service rather than it being, we'll deliver it when we get to it or when it fits our schedule, the millennials are saying, no, you'll deliver it on my terms. Uh, you'll deliver it when I need it, when I want it. And if you don't, I'm gonna take to social media with um, negative reviews of your product or company, which could be devastating to the brand. So with declines in durable goods, a new administration and a big demographic shift, putting millennials uh, as is the primary uh, the primary people in the workforce. It could put a lot of pressure on manufacturers to really beef up their post sale service organization. Yeah, that clearly is uh, important, uh, Gary. I wonder if you would just go circle back for a moment here. You spoke about some of the savings and gains that your uh, clients are seeing based on implementing the technology that you're recommending. Could you review those for our audience? Seems to me those were very significant numbers. Yeah, the, um, the, um, the financial benefits of implementing solutions like ours are pretty significant. And we'll put them into two areas. One is making sure that you have the right part at the right place at the right time can increase service parts revenues by as much as 3 to 15%, while increasing gross profits 10 to 40%, and this is related to the sale of the service part. Now, there, and then there's the pricing of the service part. That's meaning that we have the right price for that product in a given market, in a given season, because some, some products um, uh, have season, seasonal fluctuations in price, and we see our customers increasing their service parts revenue by 5% and their gross profit margins by 7% in 
as a result of implementing our service parts pricing solution. Okay. Well, those are One. powerful numbers. Um, now, there's another component here. Obviously, there are third-party vendors in the aftermarket game. Um, how does the manufacturer, as the brand name producer of those aftermarket uh, parts, stay ahead of the third-party guys who are going to come in with, uh, I hate to say knockoff, but let's say a quality similar part? You know, I think that um, for some manufacturers, if if non-OEM parts are used in a repair, it can result in, in voiding a warranty. So I think that what the manufacturers are doing to make sure that, um, that OEM parts are used is they're making sure the parts are priced competitively, and they're making sure that the parts are available. If I'm the owner of a piece of earth-moving equipment, which is a, a revenue-producing asset, my goal is to keep that thing running 100% of the time because if I'm not pushing mm -hmm. dirt, if I'm not pushing dirt, I'm not making money. So if the if the if a part fails and I go to the dealer and the dealer doesn't have the part, I may be inclined to purchase uh, an aftermarket part. So that's a motivation for the OEM or the dealer to make sure that they have a high um, over-the-counter fill rate. Above 90%, 97% is fantastic. The other thing is that we need to make sure that that part is priced competitively. Sometimes uh, there may be a motivation to buy an aftermarket part because it's significantly less expensive. This is where our pricing solution helps the manufacturer or the OEM to make sure that the part is priced correctly so that when it is at the dealer level, the end user of the part doesn't feel like they're getting gouged on that part because it's uh, an OEM part. Okay. So it, it, and I know, I'm sorry, Gary, I, I know there's going to be a, a uh, I'm sure you've hit this, a sensitivity level at the uh, dealer level. Um, okay, Gary, what you're really asking me to do is increase my inventory, and I don't want all that money tied up in inventory. But that's not what you're experiencing. Is that right? No, we can typically ha help an OEM all the way down to the dealer significantly reduce their inventory levels while improving their fill rates. It's typical that um, a manufacturer may have excess parts, meaning they've purchased parts that they don't need and they're just sitting mm -hmm. on the shelf. And so we can typically identify those and then um, eliminate those from inventory. The second part is obsolete parts. Years uh, back, lots of parts have been bought for a particular product line and that product has been sunsetted and it's no longer supported, but those parts may still be on the shelf. So by identifying excess and obsolete, um, and we can take the inventory down while taking the fill rates up. So that's where we can impact profitability by lowering SGNA, which is typically where parts hit. Um, we can improve gross profits and improving fill rates, which ultimately improves customer satisfaction. So it's, it ends up being a win-win for the manufacturer, for the dealer, and for the customer all around. Great. Now, Gary, I'm not sure. Uh, this this is kind of a uh, question that's directed at your experience talking with people um, about durable goods sales. Over the last couple of years, 15 and 16, durable goods sales were down 
at a time when the economy was trying to recover from the 2008 Great Recession. And I don't know that anybody ever had a handle on why it went so soft. Did, did you gain any insight talking to the big OEMs on why things had slowed down so much? You know, I think there was the lag uh, or the hangover from the recession where, um, you know, building had slowed a bit, um, mining had slowed a bit. I think it was just the hangover from the recession and that um, a lot of the large consumers of these durable goods were just being a bit cautious. And so mm -hmm. we had tremendous volatility where one month orders would be way up and then following month orders may be way down. So it was just incredibly volatile, but we're hoping uh, in, in chatting with some of our manufacturers, um, I think everyone is optimistic about this year being potentially the change year for the orders of durable goods. So we're hoping this, the very same thing. I know Blue's company, All Metals and Forge Group, which does forgings, which are large open die parts that go into some of this equipment. Uh, they're looking towards a, a good year as well. But let's talk about the Trump White House for a moment. Um, what's likely to be the impact on manufacturing and the supply chain as well? You know, like I mentioned, that um, if Trump actually and his administration deliver on the promise to uh, dramatically improve our infrastructure by putting a trillion dollars into the infrastructure, it could have a big impact for uh, for manufacturers. You know, the, he talked about not only uh, improving the infrastructure, but an uptick in defense spending, um, relaxing some of the restrictions or the regulations around oil and coal. Um, across the board, this could really have a big impact on orders for durable goods. Need, needless to say that his uh, promises and the method in which he's going to uh, print a trillion dollars may even be in very serious question. Um, and the defense spending, uh, the, the, the word is that we're more powerful than seven, any seven other nations in regards to uh, defense. So it, it may, be, may be problematic. Meanwhile, we're all being optimistic. Yeah, I think that um, the manufacturers that we're spoken with are very optimistic, and we're optimistic because our business is growing at, uh, at a very nice clip, and I think it's a result of the manufacturers getting ready for this boom and the fact that they are realizing that uh, there's significant margin and revenue opportunities on the after-sales service side. So I think there's, there's a general feeling of, of optimism. Yeah, no, matter of fact, uh, I'm hearing numbers from two to four years that this uh, upward upward bounce can can uh, occur. So that uh, that makes us all happy. And the uh, IP the IPM uh, the PMI number uh, also uh, uh, is indicating a very strong uh, bounce for now. Uh, so we're we're very excited about it. Yeah, we are also. It's um, it's a great time, I think, to be in uh, in in this business where we have technology that enables manufacturers to improve their financial performance. So we are. It's uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's been great to see the business grow at the pace that it's growing at. 
Well, Gary, we appreciate you being on Manufacturing Talk Radio and sharing that information with us. Uh, any uh, final comment you'd like to make before we wrap up this segment? No, thank you. Uh, thank you for your time. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation, and I think we all look forward to a, a very exciting year for manufacturing. And uh, all of us at Synchron around the world, we're just excited to be in a position to be able to help these manufacturers capitalize on a significant opportunity. Well, Gary, thank you for being with us. To remind our listeners, uh, the website is S-Y-N-C-R-O-N-Syncron.com. If you'd like to get a hold of Gary Brooks, he is in the U.S. office. His work phone number, can I give your work phone number, Gary? Um, let me see here. My email would be easier. All right. Fire it off for our listeners. My email is Gary, G-A-R-Y dot Brooks, B-R-O-O-K-S at Synchron, S-Y-N-C-R-O-N dot com. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank, Thank you. you I really appreciate your time. You, you take care now. Bye. And, and we've been speaking with Gary uh, Brooks, who is with Synchron. He is their chief marketing officer, and we'll be right back with more on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. Elevate your career and stay ahead of the curve with EISM. Brought to you by the Institute for Supply Management. EISM is the first on-the-go lifestyle-compatible learning initiative in the industry. It features hyper-short 15-minute modules and guided learning courses that can be completed in as few as three weeks, just right for you or your team. It's the world's largest one-stop online learning shop for supply management. Register today at ismelearning.org. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment, components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials? 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We are pleased to welcome the Manufacturing Talk Radio, Mark Danalek, who is the president and CEO of Pivot International, a company that he acquired in 2012. Mark, welcome to our show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We're glad to have you, and I'd like to have you explain to our listeners what Pivot International is and what services it provides, if you would, please. Sure. 
We're a full product design and engineering firm that designs products from inception all the way through manufacturing and delivering the product to, to, the, to the hands of the customer. We go from the idea, the conceptual idea, and we do the full engineering design work through prototyping, through engineering for manufacturability, as well as manufacturing the actual product. We, we have presence around the globe, headquartered in Kansas City, Missouri, at technically Lenexa, which is a suburb of Kansas City. And uh, we have offices around the world uh, through sourcing offices, other engineering design offices, and manufacturing facilities, both in the U.S. and abroad. So let me ask you a question, uh, Mark. Uh, so your customers are some kind of a company that's making a product. They don't know what to make, and they're coming to you to find out what you think they should be making. Uh, very, very similar to that. Many times they'll have an, a, a conceptual idea of what the product they would like to have. Does they uh -huh. have an idea? They have an idea, and we then take their idea and do the full engineering design for that and manufacture it. And it. Generally, we take them through where they think they want their landed price to be once they sell it to the marketplace, and we design according to those goals. And they're very, uh, very, very specific goals, and we we go through the entire documentation specification process for that in product desired outcome. So that's interesting that I, I wouldn't think that a company who's uh, existing and making product and selling product would be so short-handed, uh, uh, maybe mentally, to come up with a new product that they've got to go to an outsider who knows nothing about their company, who comes up with a concept, methodology, business model, pricing structure, marketing, and all the other things you do. That's uh, quite amazing. Well, so often, so many companies in the world really are <clears throat> sales and marketing companies. They're product company, uh -huh. product idea companies, but they don't right. have the engineer technical skills and they don't have the manufacturing skills. I mean, we would, you would, I think people would be surprised the percentage of businesses we see or products we see, how often those branded companies, whoever they may be, haven't actually done the design, engineering work, or and or the manufacturing of those products. I think people would be quite surprised, even in the medical industry. You would think of all industries and the controls, the medical would all be locked down. Uh, many, many often times those, those, that industry as well does this, uh, uses. And, and sometimes it's because, you know, they, they, have, they may have an engineering staff, but they don't have the, the engineering spe uh, specialists in the area that they're needing a new product designed mm -hmm. for. So it's not, it's, and so that's where we come in. How long has your company been in existence, uh, Mark? Uh, we're a 44-year-old company. We uh, we started uh, within the PPG conglomerate back in the day in 1972. So uh, mm -hmm. uh, in in their medical division, and then we we spun out from that, and we've been operating for almost 45 years now. So I guess uh, there really is a need for your uh, services, however surprising it, as it is. <laughs> right. Well, you know, if you think about it, if you're a mid-sized company, we, we do business with startups, entrepreneurs, middle market companies, and large billion-dollar companies. You would think the billion-dollar companies would have everything they need you that we think. do, but, but, but we're in various niches, or it might be special engineering that they just don't have the core competency for. But uh, mm -hmm. it, 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 it's really beneficial for some organizations if they have a major project that they need to have attacked and addressed. But they don't have a linear need for the, that staffing, that engineering staffing, that manufacturing staffing. It kind of comes as a lump, if you will. So mm -hmm. they can outsource it, and then when that pr product's being 
designed and now manufactured, they, they don't have to absorb that large overhead bite. And then after the, the product's developed, then have to deal with all that expenditures. When they outsource it, they can get the product made and then and keep their overhead structure kind of uh, mm-hmm. in line with how they want to do business. So in view of the fact that you are uh, been around a long time and you've seen the ups and downs in business and in manufacturing, um, so I want to just move off the spot for a moment. Uh, we're all seeing the uh, manufacturing economy really beginning to uh, cook up. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as you're involved in many different uh, sectors of manufacturing, uh, uh, do you concur with what we're all hearing about the, the next 12, 24 months, 36 months, about that the trend seems to be uh, a solid trend that's not just going to blow up uh, in six months because uh, uh, the, the president did something different or not appropriate or whatever uh do you see that same trend the yeah i i think i think the momentum is, is 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 absolutely clear and obvious what's going on provided public policy comes behind it and puts the proper structure in place i think you're going to see this momentum continue to, to continue to mount and continue to gain as we go through time i'm not so confident that's going to be what people call reshoring we're bringing plants back i think it's more about the the, the next level of manufacturing that would have otherwise gone abroad is probably going to be put in the U.S., provided mm-hmm. the tax reform, provided that deregulation, provided those kinds of things that take place, and provided that there's not a border adjustment tax that's going to mess it all up. So, so it's, 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 um, it, it's a trend. You, you will always have to have global sourcing. We, whether we like it or not, we live in a global supply chain world, uh, particularly in the electronics area, without question. And, uh, but it's 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 the makeup of global supply chain. Clearly, the momentum's there for U.S.-based manufacturing, North American manufacturing, and and provided again, if, if public policy follows through, uh, that will help um, competitive put put in a competitive landscape where where it needs to take place to be competitive in the world market. Uh, right. I, the, the momentum is quite clear. Um, how do you feel about, uh, and again, we're taking another step further away from the point, but how do you feel about the uh, potential of uh, creating about bringing jobs back to America? Because I think that's partially a myth. But bringing back corporate profits, that $1.7 trillion that's sitting all over the world uh, running other countries and supporting other countries, how do you feel that's going to go over if, in fact, uh, President Trump uh, succeeds in some level of bringing those monies back? How is that going to affect our overseas partners? Obviously, well, I, it, it'll do us. Yeah, the world I mean, I think good. it's going to be it's it's it, it's money that was earned, and it, it should, by all practical purposes, be able to cycle back to where it wants to go, where those companies want it to go. And if you can take 1.6 trillion dollars and deploy it in in a in a, a pro business deregulated tax reform environment, they're not going to put that money in the bank. They're not going to pay dividends with that. They're going to deploy it on new ventures, which has been lacking the last decade in this country. There hasn't been the risk-taking element that a capitalist economy requires to have. You have to have a feeling of risk-taking that's been lacking. And you start deploying $1.7 trillion back to cycle through the economy in a tax reform 
lesser regulatory environment. Now you've got something that's really a proper balance like we had in the 80s and 90s where you had a certain level of risk-taking that was responsible risk-taking, but it was it was a kind of uh, opportunistic type risk-taking that flourishes our economy historically. And that's where the 3.5% GDP growth on the average of 80 years were now since 19, since 2000, we've been at 1.7. I mean, that's that's the gap. That's that's the gap. And so, uh, you know, I think, you know, I think it's 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 it, it was because that money's not doing anything for anybody over there or over here, sitting over there because they can't get out, and they're not doing anything with it. I mean, it's just sitting there idle. So that I think that would be a that would be a nice, um, and I hope they don't just do a one time, bring it back, and then reinstall those rules. I hope they change the rule so it's free flowing. Right, right. right. They they tried that in 2004. Uh, yeah, exactly. Bush. Right. Uh, it didn't work. It didn't right. bring the dollars back. So you're right. They need to right. just lower the rate. Right. Uh, right. Mark, one of the things I'm sure that you look at when you talk about product development is what is happening in the world of manufacturing as it relates to robotics and the production lines. I know Lou and I talk about the skills gap a lot on the show and what's happening mm-hmm. with jobs. And Lou just alluded to the fact that, you know, reshoring of jobs is probably a myth. It, I would agree mm-hmm. it's a zero-sum game. Um, and everyone now is saying, well, robots are going to take over for humans and we're going to unemploy a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I don't happen to believe that. Uh, what's your take on it? My take is is, is the, in the discussion about reshoring our, our U.S.-based manufacturing it's going to create Joe Lunchbucket in the 1950s is a myth, and I think someone mentioned that earlier. It, that 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 is a myth. It will it will produce some production level jobs, but not proportionate to the prior era. But what it will do mm-hmm. is that there'll be robotics. The winners will be General Electric and Honeywell and those kind of companies that make the high end robotics. And the end of that is. A bigger, a greater demand for engineers, technicians, software engineers, technical people. If you go into a modern-day plant anywhere, you'll see very few production workers, many technicians, many engineers running those systems, but not Joe Lunchbucket, so to speak. You know, and so that's where the myth is at. The idea that we're going to have 400,000 auto workers with two new plants um, coming in at eight and leaving at four. Uh, Waiting out in the gate for the gates to open, like Henry Ford, is not reality in in the in today's world. I mean, it's it's going to be very high end, very sophisticated. I don't think that, I don't believe robots will take over everything, but robotic manufacturing is going to be a major emphasis. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, take take the drone industry; it's already right. a, a three or three or five billion dollar industry yeah. just within the last uh, two three years. It's really amazing, actually, right. when you think about that. Yeah, it, it is. Really is. It is exploding, yeah. and and a lot of that stuff is made from plastics. Let's talk about plastics and even metals and 3D printing. I mean, certainly, Mark, I'm guessing that you look to 3D printing for some of the prototyping mm-hmm. that you can do. Right. Um, what are the limitations for prototyping with 3D printing today? Well, I think the hardware, when we found this through personal experience, because we've invested pretty largely in 3D printing, because we generally look at a 9- to 12-month development cycle. 
if you have effective 3D printing, you can, in theory, probably cut two months out of that, maybe as much as three months out of that product development cycle. So that's a big deal for companies if they can get to market in six to nine months instead of nine to 12 months. It's a, it's a major deal. But one of the mm-hmm. things that we personally experienced is that the hardware was ahead of the software in that industry. So a lot of people bought nice printers, nice hardware, but the software wasn't really where it needed to be. And so it's a it's an infant industry that's growing fast and and uh, like a lot of other things in, in in computer technology, it 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 sometimes moves faster than it really has the capability of moving. And so I think I think in the industry is realizing that. And so people that have invested in 3D printing, it's a it's a process. And uh, but clearly you can spend as much as you want on 3D printing, everything from three hundred dollars to three million. So it's it, it, it's a broad array of 3D printers, but for prototyping, it's really an effective tool, and um, and we certainly have sped up our development cycle. Well, this we've also seen uh, some rather large 3D printing, where it's, it's no longer just small plastic parts mm-hmm. and keychains. Uh, there's a, a bridge, I think it's in uh, Europe, that they were building a bridge across a, a, a river. <laughs> Uh, and it, they were building it as it was crossing the river. They were <laughs> built. They didn't put it in place. They were growing it in place, and wow. Uh, wow. it was quite quite incredible yeah. seeing this happen. And there's a there's a lot of this. Uh, I saw a news report about a in Europe. They're testing a taxi cab size version of a drone. Mm. That really, can, really, yeah, they can transport two people at a time. And you get in, and off you go. And uh, I don't know if we're ever going to see that in Manhattan, uh, <laughs> because it's just—I don't think it can work. But uh, the, the amount of technology and the, the expanse of uh, the changing the sizes of things that could be made mm-hmm. uh, is really is really mushroomed, and uh, you know, it's quite exciting. Yeah, it's really, it's really, it's really an interesting area. The whole three D manufacturing and printing uh, side of things, because in, in ten years' time, we're going to see a totally different uh, impact of that, because it's it's a it's a new industry in the last few years, so it's 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 evolving. Um, yeah, but absolutely. each and every year, it's going to evolve more. And 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 it's kind of like smartphones when they came out in '06 or thereabouts. You know, if you compare what society was like before those and now what it is today. It's been it's just been dramatic, and 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 I think within the development industry as well as the manufacturing industry, we're going to see dramatic effects of of this 3D printing kind of investment area and evolution. Mm-hmm. One day soon, they're going to start uh, uh, inserting cell phones in the armpits of babies, <laughs> so that when you're born, you are. <laughs> automatically wired to be able to call the people, you know, and, and that's coming. That is definitely yeah. coming. Yeah. It's, if you think about how society has changed through the 30 year evolution of speed, delivery of information, you know, we first it was the mail, then it was federal express first, then it was faxes, then it was federal express, then it was emails. And it, and each and every iteration of that has sped up society. If you think about it, the timeliness Absolutely. of things and the Absolutely. speed of life, it's, it's continuing to accelerate, you know. And the original of all that was the Pony Express. 
Yeah, that's right. And it's, that's right up the street from Kansas City, matter of fact. Well, Mark, you're involved in the uh, annual Kansas City Make 48 competition as a sponsor and a judge. Uh, Lou is involved in a event this coming Saturday, uh, a Make event, where all of the libraries in the state of New Jersey are opening their doors to introduce kids and teens to mm. Uh, what's happening in manufacturing. So what's happening at the Make 48 competition in KC? Well, it's a very interesting uh, operation. It, it, the, the idea behind Make 48 is to make a functional prototype in 48 hours. And so they've, 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 <laughs> they had, they've had a show, a contest in the Smithsonian in D.C. last summer. They had one at the, the, the Kansas City Art Institute here in Kansas City last fall. They do two events a year. And, and the idea is that all these, these teams of people, and there's usually about 13 or 15 teams, that have come, they present themselves a new product, an idea. And within 48 hours on the clock, they have to develop and design a functional prototype. And then, there, then we judge which, which product makes the most sense, has the most, um, best position to be successful in the marketplace based on how they pitched it. And it's, it, it, there's a little bit of a, um, um, you know, kind of a uh, uh, similar to some of those shows that Mark Cuban and, and such are on. Is that it's uh, it's it's you know Shark Tank, uh, and you know it's a, it's a similar only it's in more in a real life setting. These are real people, real ideas, real products, and 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 they they in 48. So it's quite impressive. And a lot of companies donate uh, 3D printers and various equipment for them for that event and uh and we we do the same and also I'm, I'm a judge on that and we judge is it a functional product does it have a a viable chance of uh, being successful in the marketplace and uh and and, and it does the business case make sense and, and so we judge all those products and then we uh, the winner uh qvc is involved in it and some other large organizations are involved in it so they help uh the pathway to the marketplace. So the winners mm-hmm. have a true pathway with the support of QVC and few, a few other organizations to give them the pathway to the, to the, to the marketplace. So it sounds like Mark, that some of these actually have gone to market and been sold. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, it's a fairly new organization. I think you're going to see more of that in the next two or three years. You're going to see products out in the marketplace and it's going to be as a result of that make 48 program. And it's, it's, you know, PBS has shown some interest in it as well, I understand, as far as it's intriguing to a lot of the television networks, the real kind of um, educational, edu- educational type television, because it's, it's real product development. It's, it, it, if you think about it, it's kind of emphasizing engineering, manufacturing, U.S. kind of innovation, you know, if you think about it. And so there's a real kind of a neat uh, aspect to it as far as it kind of ties into what we're hearing a lot in America right now. In a lot of ways. They they even have a um, uh, cable show that shows how to forge uh, swords, and they will get uh, five or six uh, uh, open die or hand hand forged forgers on a show, and they give them a project, and this project takes a week or two, and they keep coming back and show how they're progressing, and during the sh- during the two-week period, they, they're filming how these uh, forgers are designing and making and coming up with a, a quality product. Hmm. At the end of the show, um, they, pick, they pick a winner, but 
how they pick a winner is that they put these uh, forged uh, swords or mm-hmm. knives or daggers through various tests. Uh, like they'll take um, a big slab of plastic that's in the shape of a human body and they take it and they slash the body in half and see if the sword, one, could oh. go through it and not break. So there's a couple of four or five of these tests and there's always one winner, and you know it's a big, big hoopla uh-huh. about what a great job he did. And I find it obviously fascinating because uh, I'm in the business, sure. and, I, and and I was really shocked to see that they even had a show like this on television. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's amazing what's on television. Some of the like, you know, the the most difficult engineering projects. You know, a lot of the, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of these shows now that are on real life kind of interesting things about engineering or about making things or all kinds of different things. There seems to be a a greater interest for, there's kind of like a renaissance going on to some degree. And it kind of ties into this reshoring discussion and the manufacturing. And it's amazing how the momentum's changed so quickly. But I think there's a, I think it touches a renaissance kind of nostalgic kind of nerve to people. Cause it kind of, I think everyone knows we need to start adding more value in Mm -hmm. the country and not mm-hmm. just a service industry only. And and I think people kind of know that, and, and they just didn't know how to start start that process. Uh, Mark, if uh, any of our audience wants to reach out to you, uh, how do they get you? Yeah, so you, your, yeah we can, your, you can email me at m, mdonelick at pivotint.com. For the sake of those who don't know how to spell Donald, Donald, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that would be about everything. Right, <laughs> it would be M is in Mark, D is in dog, O H, N is in Nancy, A L E K, at P I V O T I N T dot com. Well, that's great. That's great. Uh, and uh, Jim, back to you. Well, Mark, we appreciate uh, having you on the show. I just have to ask you one more question. Without giving away any trade secrets of a client you might have, what are kind of some of the neat things that you either have experienced or expect to see over the next couple of years that are new, high-tech, wow-type things that uh, we typically see at the the consumer electronics shop? Well, I think one of the the coolest things I think we've done is, is for border security, the biometric iris detection equipment, we've done a device that, you know, our fingerprints are, are there's 90,000 duplicates, they say, and irises are unique. So so we we, we, did, we did a device for a customer on that. Um, we've, uh, on, on the extreme other side of the spectrum, we had four championship fishermen approaches, and, and they wanted to find out if we could make something that would automatically skin fish. And so we uh, we've we've developed that product, and so that's out in the yeah, in the retail. Uh, for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was it, it was there is if because it was a joke. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of the joke of the office when these four people walked in, and then they realized they were serious about it. And so, two years later, we developed, and it's being sold to Cabela's right now. So it's uh, so yeah, so it's uh, so we get the, we, the spectrum of products. We go from medical, high high end, very technical to consumer goods. So it's it's. It, and I think you know, I think, and I think that you had mentioned drones. I think there's going to be some interesting thing in the few things in the future of all what, what gets done with the drones. I think there's some regulatory things that they're going to have to worry about as well because we don't want our airplanes flying into them. But um, <laughs> but well, but I think there's going to be some interesting things that come from that actually. 
I think maybe uh, the administration may want to get rid of the FAA, and then you get rid of all the regulations, and then you can fly wherever the hell you want. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And you're landing a 777 with 14 drones hitting you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. right. Meet George <laughs> Jetson the hard way. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, well, Mark, it's, thank you for being on Manufacturing Talk Radio. We certainly enjoyed hearing about Pivot International. Well, thank you very much, and I, I truly enjoyed it. Thank you, Mark, and we like having you. Okay, thank you much. Right, bye-bye. We encourage everyone to go to Manufacturing Talk Radio and listen to, probably a couple of times, the show we just did. A lot of great information on it. If you're an original equipment manufacturer and you need to get a better after-sales service operation going and you're looking for some profitability in that, I think that uh, Synchron can probably help you. It's certainly worth a conversation. And uh, we encourage everyone to listen to Mark Donnell's comments, uh, who is uh, from Pivot International. And they're really all about how do I get a, a uh, new product to market faster without having to hire permanent full-time employees when I really only need them for a duration of time, four months, six months, nine months. So that's what Pivot International does. Next week's show, we are going to talk about all of the different purchasing managers index reports that occur around the world. The Institute for Supply Management has actually um, signed contracts with uh, counterparts in other countries. They also have them in other states here in the U.S., but counterparts in other countries so that they can use the same theories to generate reports on what's happening in those countries. And we have Norbert Orr, who was with ISM, he is now with Strategus Research Partners, and he reports on 18 Global Purchasing Managers Index reports, as well as several in the United States around the country. Kind of what uh, Dr. Chris Keel often refers to when we ask him, well, how's the economy doing? And he says it depends on what sector you're in and what part of the country. So that's some of the uh, reports that we'll look at. We'll also be speaking with Royce Lowe, who covers the uh, UK force and the EU. Uh, Norbert often covers uh, Asia as well. So tune in next week for our global show where we talk about what's happening in manufacturing around the world, which directly means exports for you who are in manufacturing or imports for you who need supplies in the supply chain. Thank you for listening today. All of our shows are at mfgtalkradio.com. You can go there and uh, dial up any of our podcasts. There's a complete history since November 13th of uh, 2014, I guess, is when we got started. We're uh, rolling into our, uh, in our fourth year here. So thanks for listening today, and we'll be back with you next week. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>